Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hi. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. Good? Yeah. Okay. I'm ready for some more of this. I really enjoyed the first episode. Yeah. I liked it too. Um, today we're going to continue with our discussion of Richard Kuklinski, commonly known as the Iceman, nicknamed for his body disposal method. And that, of course, early on he was referred to as being cold as ice, which we will mm. actually talk about uh, a little later in the show. So last time we discussed a few shaping events in Richard's earliest years, including the abuse he endured and how it helped to shape his aggressive behavior toward animals and eventually humans, including his first murder when he was 13 years old, or at least the first recorded murder that we know of or that he talked about. In this episode, I'd like to begin by layering on some additional context for Richard's early narrative, specifically regarding his parents. Uh, I found in my work that we, that we carry ancestral trauma and that these types of behaviors, families, people are more often than not a single generation in the making. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Richard's mom briefly here. So her name was Anna. Uh, Richard's mother, who we know from the last episode, would beat him with a broomstick or anything hard she could get her hands on. She immigrated from Ireland in 1904 to Jersey City with her parents and her two older brothers. So she was the youngest of three. Shortly after they immigrated to America, her mother was killed after being hit by a car and her father died of pneumonia. So all three children went to live at the Sacred Heart Orphanage. So just as a start, you immigrate to America and your parents are gone you know, died suddenly, it sounds like. I mean, pneumonia can be super quick mm-hmm. and obviously hit, hit by a car is tragic and quick, quick as well. So they, all three children went to the Sacred Heart Orphanage. At the orphanage, um, it was a Catholic orphanage. So there were rules and prayers and different things that were expected. And at the orphanage, Anna was beaten regularly by the nuns um, and ultimately raped by a priest by the age of 10 years old and then was repeatedly raped until she left the orphanage at 18. So your parents die suddenly at a young age and then you are beaten and raped in the name of God until the age of 18 when she was not able to stay at the orphanage any longer and so she moved into a catholic convent can i just say something real quick you bet okay so um i'm not sure if you saw the documentary um oh god was it called the secret it's about the the catholic church back in the day that was running that whole brothel basically i mean Mm. they were it's it's devastating series but it addresses some of the stuff that you're talking about and Mm. some of the women women who grew up are now older being able to speak out about being victims to that Mm. i just want to say one of the things that i appreciate about that documentary is how it talks about because you said you know being raped in the name of god and how uh, a woman will then be you know raped and then shamed 
and told she's perverted and filthy and God doesn't love her and all of those messages, how that must have beaten down her psyche because it's already bad enough to be raped, but then you're raped by a priest or you're raped by like a godlike figure who then punishes you for it. Mm -hmm. How confusing. So you're opening yourself up to being with an abuser mm -hmm. who just further perpetuates that shame. And that to me must be one of the most devastating ways to go through life because yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because the faith system is supposed to provide comfort. Protection. Yeah. And everything that was protective left her. And then... Yeah, we often say that faith is a protective factor when we work with clients. and can be uh, a huge risk factor. And so that's the delicacy of looking at clients in a black and white way, which we do not want to do because mm -hmm. most of us would think, oh, they have a faith system. It's a protective factor. But once you know this history, coupled with that quote unquote protective factor, then you don't see it as that. You see it as trauma bonding. You yep. see it as all kinds of other things. And the so. messages that faith that can be used in the name of faith mm -hmm. can be risk factors. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Good job. Good point. Yay. Uh, at the age of 18, she left the orphanage and moved into a Catholic convent um, and she was planning to become a nun. That was her idea. But then you know, can you imagine you're abused by nuns your whole, most of your young life after losing your parents? And then, so that's all you know. You don't have any skill. They don't, you know, she doesn't have any other skills. She doesn't have any other um, support system. I mean, her brothers were older, but I don't really know what was going on with them. I would imagine they, you know, went away and got married or did whatever they did. Um, and I'm not sure of the age difference. So, I'm not sure why they weren't around at that particular moment, but um, sh then she meets Stanley, which is Richard's father, at a church dance. So she's 18, and he is 26. Now, Stanley was born in Warsaw, Poland, and immigrated to America, and then ultimately Jersey City with his mother, father, and two brothers. And it's interesting because last time I said, oh, you know, Stanley must have been a big guy if he could intimidate Richard, but he wasn't. He was 5'7", and Richard's 6'5". This is interesting. 5'7", um, with black hair, very handsome, very sort of charming. Uh, they meet at a dance. He's obviously a little bit older, Anna knows nothing really. She's never, this is just kind of a first situation for her. So in, in some ways, I guess, here's the thing is she was described as uh, cold, unfeeling, rarely smiled, austere. So her humanity, you know, we talked a lot last time about Richard and his humanity or lack thereof. You know, her humanity had been beaten out of her oh my God. by then as well. Um, and and I imagine, you know, she's still looking for God to save her. She's still looking for someone to save her. And then you have um, Stanley who pursued Anna and they married within three months. So they, in our world, from what I could tell, what I read, what I heard, it was a very narcissistic courtship or what we what we would see in a narcissistic personality's courtship of another. It happens very fast. They're very charming. They say things like, this is, I've never felt this way before. They zero in, you know, it's almost like being um, groomed or stalked or whatever word hypnotized. you want to use. Hypnotized. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like being in a cloud and it's mesmerizing because you can imagine that Anna hadn't had anybody since her parents when she was younger that ever looked at her that way, 
um, at that particular time for those feel special for those three yeah. months, absolutely put her on a pedestal, um, focused entirely on her. And if you've never had um, a, a narcissistic personality focus entirely on you, it's hard to describe, especially in an intimate way. Yes, yeah. if it's a partner, um, someone you're attracted to. Um, even a, even a mentor, even if it's not sexual, it's like even a mentor, somebody with a power differential, and certainly at that time, men and women, there was a, a inherent it's power intoxicating. Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. incredibly intoxicating. So this is what happens in my head: is that she was intoxicated. She was eighteen. She had just moved out of an orphanage where she had been victimized repeatedly, um, probably daily, and then Stanley comes to rescue her. Mm. Right. So. Unfortunately, soon after they were married, she started to see him for more of what he was, and that was incredibly jealous, which we see in these personalities as well. Very, very jealous, very possessive, Um, and he soon started beating her. Uh, And when she decided not to tell Stanley that she'd been raped repeatedly by a priest from a young age, he noticed that she wasn't a virgin um, once they were married. She was punished for that. And so he regularly called her a whore and would accuse her consistently of cheating on him. Um, And she didn't tell her brothers about the abuse either. And so she really had no one that knew really who she was or what was happening. You know, she wasn't telling, she wasn't able to tell her partner about what had happened to her. Um, who knows if he would have cared or done anything or, or, or maybe dismissed her as used goods or, you know, I have no idea like that kind of sick, sick kind of twisted perspective that he had. I don't know what he would have done with that information, but I mean, good Irish Catholics didn't divorce. Right. And I'm wondering too, if she, she learned, um, early on to compartmentalize and stuff because, anything that what she would have shared in the um, church would have fallen on deaf ears. So it's like, this is an, sort of another version of this and she's learned to just not talk about it, not process it. Or Yeah. It's like what we talked about last time where, you know, when the beatings would happen, her, her way to do it would be to go to church and pray or right. to turn and stand in a corner and not watch and pray in the corner. Isn't it interesting that through all this, she still kept a level of faith. I guess it's like, it was her only, yeah, Any, anything, even though it, it was used against her and it turned against her, it was still where she put everything. Yeah, bonded. Yeah. Um, it was an abuse. It was its own form of an abuser. Absolutely. It's like self-abuse mm-hmm. or, you know, traumatizing yourself over and over again. We see mm-hmm. that in other ways, not religious ways, but in mm-hmm. other ways people do that. Um, in 1929, she gave birth to Florian. We told Florian's story last time. Mm-hmm. Um Florian's named after Stanley's father, but after that birth, he got worse. He drank more. He accused her of cheating. Um, he accused her of say, like saying Florian wasn't his, like that she was oh, sleeping yeah. around and saying that, you know, Florian wasn't his. And she often actually considered leaving Stanley, um, but never did because of all the reasons we've said. And, you know, he would regularly rape her. Uh, he would get drunk and, if he wanted what he wanted whenever. And I, and I don't know in that day and time if it was considered rape, but Anna didn't want to. And so we would consider it rape these days. In 1935, gave birth to Richard. Beatings continued, 
both boys are beating, you know, being beat regularly. Last time we went into how Florian was beat to death. And so uh, there's that layer of he was accusing her that Florian wasn't his. So maybe there was a piece Mm -hmm. of that in there. Not that Richard couldn't have been killed by the beatings too. I'm sure he could have. It's Mm -hmm. just, that's the way it happened. Um, and when Richard was, yeah, when Richard was five, Florian was killed by his father. I wanted to play this, uh, quick clip. It's of Richard, um, talking about, I believe talking about his mom and dad. So let me put the sound up. Okay, here we go. What's the worst beating you ever took from your old man? <laughs> I don't think there's much difference in any of them. They were all pretty bad. He uh, left his mark on me, pretty much. And he did most of that before you were, what, 11? Yes, I was young. And was that worse when he was drinking? With Stanley, it didn't really matter whether he was drinking or he wasn't drinking. He was a nasty son of a bitch, and he always will be until the day he died. And when he died, he was a nasty son of a gun. Did you go to his funeral? No, I didn't. Was there one? Yes. I didn't like him in life. Why would I want to go see him in death? I was glad he was dead. How about your mom? How was she? Over the years, I got to dislike my mother a great deal. But now that I have more time to think about it, she was just a victim of her own life. As a kid, how did you see her? Hateful. Disliked her a great deal. She didn't believe in uh, sparing her either. I mean, she used to hit me with a uh, broomstick if I did something wrong. Where would she hit you? Wherever it hit. So that is Richard Kuklinski being interviewed by a psychiatrist a couple of decades ago, maybe. Um, maybe not that long ago. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, it, it's it's the documentaries that I discussed last time, and they are widely available on YouTube if you're interested in watching him and are interested in him as a topic. So those were his moments. He talks a lot, actually, about his mom and dad in different ways throughout the documentary. So, so after, let's see. So in 1942, he actually had a sister named Roberta who was born. So there's these two kids that are five years apart or so, um, in the early thirties. And then, uh, in the early forties, uh, Anna has Roberta and then she has Joseph in 1944, who's the youngest brother. So there's this gap, right? So you've got these two siblings that are kind of older. Well, one sibling, ultimately, Richard, who's older, and then these two littler ones. And by this time, Stanley is gambling away the little money that the family has and spends it on alcohol. He's out of the house a lot. Um, I wanted to mention, so Joseph, the youngest brother. So I'm going to leap forward for just a second so you have some context because I'm not going to talk about Joey much. Um, in 1970, uh, Joseph raped a 12 year old girl on the top of a building and then threw her off of it. Uh, 
the way he got her up there was he stole a girl's dog. He stole the girl's dog. He lied to the girl to get her up on the roof of the building. He raped her, killed her, and then threw her off of the building uh, along with the dog. Uh, the dog survived the fall with a broken paw and alerted people to the girl's body by barking. And the police went to his house. He was arrested and quickly confessed and went to prison for life. And later, Richard and Joey were in the same prison. And this psychiatrist asked him, you know, what, what's it like? Do you see Joey in the yard? This kind of thing. And he says, you oh, know, we pass each other in the hallways every now and then. You know, do you talk about, you know, do you talk to each other? Do you get support from each other? He's like, no, we maybe say hello. That's a lot of words for me and my brother to talk, you know, that, that to speak. And the psychiatrist asked him a little bit like, you know, are you surprised that Joseph sort of, you know, went to prison for life uh, in 1970, you know, and Richard's answer is we came from the same father. So Joseph was apparently a psychopath as well. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking to um, just how he, Richard had no concept of relating a relationship of any kind within mm -hmm. his own family. I mean, they're, the yeah. dynamics, the attachment, all of that stuff that's involved in relating with another person, his mm -hmm. own, the way he described his father and that bit that we listened to and then just the way he described his brothers. They just happen to be related, but yeah. that, that's it. Yeah, it, you don't get a, a sense of it. There's, there's a little bit more here. Maybe, I don't know, there's like whispers of a family, you know? Um so once there were four children in the home, Stanley, you know, the dad began openly picking up women in bars and sleeping with them. Uh, Anna became more religious. It just started to really fall apart because Stanley was spending what mo little money they had. He was traveling for work. Um, he was out working all the time or he was in the bars getting drunk and apparently picking up women. It just sort of started, they started to lead even more separate lives. Um, meanwhile, Richard is in Catholic school. So again, just remember, I'm kind of layering on to what we already discussed before. So in addition to the other things that we talked about, he's in a Catholic school and he's dyslexic and he's also kind of a funny guy. He uses humor to break tension in class. So, you know, that's not the most popular thing for mm -hmm. teachers mm -hmm. and he's dyslexic. So he's in Catholic school with what is described as quote unquote sadistic nuns. Um, he's slapped, he's hit with a ruler. They, they make his knuckles bleed. He's, his ears are pulled when he gets into trouble. There's a lot of hands-on action in this school. Um, and simultaneously he becomes an altar boy. Mm. And when he's an altar boy, he talks about, um, being slapped by the priests if he did something wrong. Um, one of the priests, he got the sense that the guy was making advances towards him and would like talk about masturbating and things. And so Richard became very cautious to never be alone with any of the priests. Mm -hmm. And so you sort of see how this is like his mom. <laughs> like there's this, it, I, I guess that's what I'm, I just see in this um, case for lack of a better word or this story, this, this person's story, this generational experience where, you know, so ultimately he's threatened, he threatens a nun basically 
What ultimately happens is they push him too far and he threatens a nun. After the nun has beat him beat him with a ruler, he threatens her. He starts to get, you know, yeah. like he is at home, right? Yeah. Like he's starting to push back and he he he's after being smacked around, he threatens her and then the priest comes in to back her up, drags him into the, you know, principal's office and beats him with a bible. And then he goes home and gets a beating from his mom for what happened at school. And the story goes that he quit religion after that. Um, he decided that religion was a con job and a control tactic. Well, it was. Yeah. And I mean, at home, his mom is using religion. And, you know, you even heard him say, you know, spare. My mom didn't spare the rod either. He knows mm -hmm. all that. He went to Catholic school. He knows all of those Catholic mm -hmm. sayings. Of, spare the rod, you know, spoil, spoil the child. The child. Mm -hmm. So. Um, he quit religion after that, and Stan. By this time, Stanley is leaving the family. Basically, he's he, al not he also this was also an early introduction into how how to control someone with fear, mm -hmm. and so I'm sure that plays out later. But and well, he's getting it at home too. Stan yeah. Stanley always controlled by fear, right? Which um, is what pu all punishment is, and how it's so different from discipline. And mm -hmm. we talk about this a lot when we when we work with families and the difference between disciplining, you know, coming from the word disciple to teach is very different from punishment, which is fear based. And in the absence of that fear factor, the behavior is there. And mm -hmm. then they learn. And then all that they do is they learn how to use that then either against that person or the rest of the world. And so fear became as much as it was a, a, a risk factor for him when he was younger, it became a weapon, a tool that he used and, and just learned, he owned it. He mm -hmm. learned to own it versus be, yeah. yeah. And punishment is just, is frustrating for the punisher as well. It doesn't get the desired result. No. I think most punishers, I mean, I'm not saying Stanley had a, a mindfulness about this. You know, Stanley was going to hit whoever was around, whether right. he was drunk, sober, whatever, it didn't matter. That was just who he was. He was just mm -hmm. brutal. And so, but the, it frustrates the Punisher too, because I'm sure the desired in the moment, the desired result is stop doing whatever the hell you're doing. Right. And all the child does is stop in the moment and then does it again. It yeah. doesn't, it does it's not corrective. So right. it's not. Yeah. No. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that actually. They're like, why isn't this working? Cause it's not teaching them anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's not yeah. tied to anything. No. They don't understand. It's yeah. like, yeah, no. So Stanley's mostly left the family by now. Um, and uh, right before we, we're going to take a quick break in a second, but I just want to mention a couple things. Um, so with Stanley kind of out of the picture, basically, Anna has to take two jobs. So the layer is, to what we already know, is that Anna has to take two jobs at this point. She works all day at the meat plant and cleans the church at night. So there's this period of time where this is where Richard is killing animals. So just the context of that, which I think is an important layer, is sort of you think Richard was out killing hundreds of animals and doing experiments on them and all these creative ways. Like where the hell was everybody else? Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to point out there's this layer of her, his you know, the husband is gone and out. And actually I think later they found out like living with a different woman and creating a whole nother family, I think. But, you know, so Anna's working two jobs with these four kids and he's out doing whatever the heck he wants, but obviously, and he starts to steal food mm. for his siblings 
to eat so that they can eat because mom's working two jobs is never home and providing Stanley's gone. The, that money's gone. She's not make, she's probably just making rent, you know? Um, so they're hungry and they don't have clothing and all of that. So Richard begins to steal for survival. And that's an important piece of the story because besides killing animals, which is obviously an egregious activity, he also starts to steal. He stole from bakery trucks. He stole from train cars. Even though he's this shy kid, he's going out and he's very, um, he becomes pretty adept. And at first his mom doesn't accept the food. She knows it's stolen. The kid doesn't have any money, right? And people aren't just giving you food on the corner. It was a very depressed area of the city. Um, and she didn't accept the food at first, but slowly she began to, um, but she's also beating him regularly still. So she yeah. becomes the primary abuser. Stanley's gone. She takes on that role. She yeah. just does it in a slightly different way. It's usually as a form of punishment as opposed to Stanley's abuse was indiscriminate. Right, right. You don't have to do anything. Right, mm -hmm. unpredictable. She She's going to do it if, you, if you're doing anything wrong. She's going to punish you. And so here's the thing is she's beating him and she starts to praise him for being a provider. Mm. So there's this, as we've seen over and over again in this story with both Anna and Richard and last week, it's this how we tie um, praise and abuse together. Oh, my God. So uh, praise him for being a provider. Thank you so much for getting bread and food and feeding the children while I'm never here. And wait, the, this you didn't clean the sink and I'm going to beat you. So there's this tied together from your mom, right? Very confusing. Who you're still trying to please and figure out and why doesn't she love me? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of that in in the writing and well, stuff and it about also, It makes too. the love conditional, mm -hmm. very conditional, which doesn't very. allow for a child to develop their own sense of self because mm -hmm. everything is conditioned on what that parent needs. So, right. And, and yeah. it, it creates, it can, in minor ways in our, in the kind of average family or average world, it can create things like perfectionism sure. because you, and anxiety because mm -hmm. you just, you don't know what, and, and decision-making issues and like a sense of self and how you make decisions and not being able to be a leader, all those things, because you're totally gripped by fear and anxiety and making your own decision because you think you'll be punished if you right. make the wrong one. I have so. several teenage clients who yeah. really struggle with that, where mm -hmm. th there's so much fear around making the wrong decision mm -hmm. or being disliked and it, it's paralyzing to them. And I think parents will say things like, I don't understand. Right. Why? They, da, da, da. Exactly and it's like, but do. well, you, you, we we totally listen. We, yeah. we, we, we want her to do well. And it's, eh. Yeah, and then you watch the dynamic and that's not actually what's happening. Yeah. You know, mom's saying like, well, why did you do it that way? Mm -hmm. Well, you should do it this way. And you're like, eh, eh, eh. or their or their um, expression of that is met with resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, but. Yes, that's that combo. I hear you, but. I hear yeah. you, but, and but is. Yeah, you know, you just disregard everything you were just trying the, to do. All the strength-based yeah, stuff. We you were just fucked it all up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's um, that's an average thing we see a lot. Obviously, yeah. in Richard's case, it's... it's Way more severe. It's, yeah, it's amplified. So at this point, they... She actually... And I'm, then we're going to take a break. She actually gets federally subsidized project housing. And that's when they move to the projects 
um, it's heated, it's clean, it's new. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. exciting for them. They've been living in, in squalor um, and they get this project housing. And if you remember, that's when he moves to the projects and then begins sort of uh, the low-level gang life. Starting the shenanigans. Yeah. So we'll take a break and then uh, add some more to the story. We'll be right back. While we take a quick break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, and Facebook Halloween all year long. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Or check out our Patreon page for extra content and more behind-the-scenes discussions. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back. But first, stick around for more of our show. Hi there. We're back from the break. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. We are discussing Richard Kuklinski. This is the second episode of our four-part series on the Iceman. So... As we know from the last time, our last episode, uh, at this point in the story, uh, the family has moved to the projects. He's a little bit older, I'd say 11, 12, something like that. He's being bullied by older boys. There's gangs in the projects um, where he ultimately, the story that we told last time is the story of his first kill, where he ultimately killed the leader of the gang that was in the projects and beat the rest of them up establishing that he's you know a badass at this point he he starts to turn the tables he becomes the aggressor as opposed to the beaten um but what i wanted to layer on top of that because kathy brought up something last time of like how did he know what to do with the body once he killed the kid mm-hmm. like god he's so like you know cut off the fingerprints and blah, blah, resourceful, blah, resourceful yeah. and all of that well here's the thing is he had become in his time of being bullied and being alone and being in the projects with no one that he knows because they just moved there he becomes obsessed with true crime magazines and he would go down to the river and read them very slowly. He was dyslexic. He would read them very slowly and multiple times. And he would regularly fantasize about executing what he would read on his enemies. Now, mm-hmm. revenge has be- has been a theme. Um, mm-hmm. I remember last time we talked a little bit about his revenge fantasies and certain things in the documentaries and the books of the way he talks about um, his victims and the different things is it would often be out of revenge. So after his first kill and him becoming more of a dominant tough guy in the neighborhood, he'd, you know, by this point, so he'd stolen a car that he kept down the street in a lot to use whenever he wanted to. He sometimes carried a big bat with him over his shoulder around the neighborhood. Just like, hey, I'm a tough guy, don't mess with me. He sometimes carried a knife. Uh, He became a pool hustler. I mean, this is like... 12, 13. That's insane. Year old kid. So his first kill thirteen at 13. So 13, 14 year old kid. He's pool hustling. He's bringing home food. You know, he was regularly beating and stabbing people who got the best of him, quote unquote. So remember that there's this um, trend of revenge because killing his first kill was a revenge killing because the guy had humiliated him time and time again in the neighborhood. And so this is a theme that's going to come up over and over and over again of Richard killing um, out of uh, humiliation. So I want to play this clip real quick here. How much would somebody have to humiliate you 
before you'd become obsessed with killing them? It would, it would be the degree he, he humiliated me. If it were not much, and it would be the time. It would be how my attitude was. If I was jumpy or edgy, it wouldn't take much. If I was passive, then uh, he, he might get away with it. But no one really knew. So that's what I mean by humiliate. He talks about it pretty openly and honestly. That I think we've talked about that on the show, too, how mm-hmm. humiliation is one of the biggest risk factors for an offender. Like, if they're humiliated, that's a sure shot reason they're going to lash out. Yeah, I think it's come up in each series that we've done. With where... sex, sex offenders especially. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I specifically remembering it in Dahmer too, and there and and all and in all of them, I think it's come up eventually where there's a there's a tr- Bundy. I'm thinking now, Bundy. It's all flooding in, yeah. like all these situations where they're humiliated in their life, and then and that starts snap. a series yeah. of things, right? So yeah. it just manifests a bit different in in Richard. So let's talk about what happens next. So as he's switched to more of an aggressive guy, uh, he forms the gang and they call themselves the Coming Up Roses gang. And there's five of them. And actually, as an aside, one day he comes home to witness his mother having sex with a married neighbor, like on the couch. And he witnesses this happen. And then just like his father, actually, he sort of leaves, and from that day on, he's like, you're a hypocrite, you're a whore, mm. this, that, or the other. And, and remember, that's pretty much how Stanley would treat her, too. Sure. Um, so it, it, you kind of get the sense of what daily life was like. I mean, I think he was just on the streets in order to avoid this sort of home life. And Anna was just doing what Anna would do to survive or to feel better or whatever the heck she was doing, you know, the house, the house was just like a place where everyone slept, but there was nothing safer or yeah. Yeah. I I don't, I kind of, I mean, this is on such a less level, like I'm not even comparing, but it makes me think of the show shameless. Mm. Like when they would come home and it's Mm -hmm. just like constant debauchery, you know, going on in the house. It's like, and they're kind of like walking over each other with someone's like shooting up and the other person's Mm -hmm. fucking on the couch. Mm -hmm. And like that, that just becomes their, it's the normal. It's the normal. And the one sister who's just trying to get dinner on the table for all the kids. And yeah, yeah. I, I, chaos basically and parentified children. Yep. Um, so, Let's talk about Richard's, what's recorded as Richard's second kill. So by this time, he's pool hustling. He's got a gang. Um, so there's a regular place that he goes to play pool. And there's a loudmouth cop named Doyle who he's playing pool with, who's taunting him. And, you know, how boys will be boys type of thing when you're in that kind of milieu. And if you imagine Jersey and if you know, you know, culturally people from that area, I happen to know someone in my life that I'm very close to is from Philly. So it's like, there's a, there's a vibe there of, you know, they often say Philadelphia Eagle fans hate, hate 
as a form of love. <laughs> so they'll be the ones like throwing things at their own team type of deal. So that's the vibe, right? Where you taunt each other when you're competitive. So I'm kind of imagining this cop Doyle being like that. Like, oh, what are you doing, man? I don't know. You know, just like taunting him as a form of competition, which I've just seen play out, generally speaking, among men of that mm -hmm. uh, region. Mm -hmm. So that's happening. Uh, so... Richard gets humiliated mm -hmm. and upset mm -hmm. and Richard doesn't like to be taunted. He doesn't uh, engage because of his history that we've laid out very extensively. Now <laughs> he doesn't take to that. So what he does is, is he waits, he leaves the bar or the pool hall, whatever it was. And he waits outside like a crazy stalker guy. And he waits for the guy to leave and the guy leaves and he gets into his car and i guess richard sort of has this thought process of well if i shoot him or i stab him i'm going to be a prime suspect because i was just in the pool hall like losing to him or arguing with him or whatever was going on so that's not the best course of action so again he's been reading the true crime magazines he's absolutely been involved in a criminal life and had criminal influences by now probably 14 or something like that. And it's interesting how they all do their own form of research, isn't mm -hmm. it? Cause we saw yep. this with Dahmer and Bundy as well. Mm -hmm. and, and the stuff that they would do early on to just become well-versed. Yes. Cause Bundy used to read the, the violent pornography. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the, the influences, right? They go, they go after how do I get the upper hand or how do I, it's rehearsal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so he has a thought process around, well, that's not smart. I'm not going to just shoot him or stab him. Um, so what he does is he's like, okay, well, I, I'm going to, I guess I can't do this or whatever. He goes away. But then he kind of decides to revisit it. And he comes back and he sees that Doyle has fallen asleep in his car, effectively sleeping it off, right? So he thinks, hmm, I have an idea. So he goes to the gas station and he gets, um, he buys gas and puts it in a container and he takes it back to where Doyle is sleeping. He pours the gas in the car all over Doyle and all over the car and he lights a match and throws it in. And then he stands away over on the corner or whatever, um, specifically to hear the screams and watch the car explode and he talks about how he could smell the guy's flesh and all of this. So disgusting as that is, uh, I think it speaks to the stalking, the revenge, um, the creativity that he prided himself on. If you watch his interviews or read anything about him, you'll see that he he'll often say, oh, oh, maybe this is, maybe this is something you'll be interested in hearing. You know, this, this was a real creative one. And then he'll tell that story of that kill. He's very, and he smiles and laughs and he tells you the story as if like, you know, this, this was a really impressive one. Mm -hmm. So there's a, um, there's a creativity that he likes mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. So at this point, he's become handsome. He's tall and thin and blonde, and um, he, women become start to become interested in him. He's, you know, for 15, 16, something like that. And he's in these pool halls, right, and, and has his own life. He doesn't mm -hmm. answer to anyone. He's effectively an adult, provides for himself, 
So older women in particular begin to take him home uh, from the pool hall, and he loses his virginity to one of these women. I'm not sure if this is the one, but at 16 years old, he meets Linda, who's 25 years old, and he begins. Li- he basically moves in with her. He doesn't go home that much anymore. Um, he's just with Linda, and he talks a, a bit about how you know she was very sexually active and they were in a sexual relationship and he provided whatever she wanted whenever she wanted. It's like he, it's interesting because the way he describes it is a little bit submissive. Like she was just kind of showing him the ropes and he would just would do whatever, do whatever she asked. And at that same time, apparently his younger sister had gained a reputation in the neighborhood for being easy. I think that often happens in these types of families where, there's no one really paying attention, right? There's no one around. And so I would imagine his sister was getting attention in in ways that was satisfying to her. And whether it was true or not, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Her mom was, you know, called a whore too and and effectively was doing things to manage her own affect that maybe people would think were whore-like or whatever. But I don't don't see that. I don't use that word and I don't see it as that kind of behavior. I think they're just trying to manage their own feelings um, and probably trying to be happy in some way for a few minutes. Um, And... So Richard would try to go home and talk to his sister about it, but that sort of never did any good, unfortunately. And he also would go home. He had heard that his father was now coming around and slapping his mother around again. Um, Even though dad's like living with some other woman or something at this point, we we don't, I don't sort of know what was going on with him. But, and so even though Richard was very angry with his mother at this time and really hated her by this point, um, he, he when he found this out, he went and he found his father and he put a gun to his head and he threatened his life. Wow. Like, if you ever come around here again, I'm going to fucking kill you kind of thing. Well, now he was strong enough. Well, he some, had a gang. He some killed of it, people. Yeah, it was, yeah. The, again, less about mom and that revenge fantasy. Of- and he had taken his dad's thing to a whole new level. Yeah. I mean, as far as we know, I mean, the father had killed his son, right? right. And beat him to death. His little brother, yeah. Right. But, <clears throat> excuse me, as far as we know, his his father's killing wasn't wrapped up in revenge and stalking and creativity no. and becoming a psychopath. Yeah. It was it was unbridled, primitive psychopath, totally. psychopathy, right? Totally. Of beating everyone you care about. Mm-hmm. It's just got the, a different thing, and I hope I there's hope no, we there's nothing strategic about it. Like no. you said, it's very disorganized, and just if you mm-hmm. piss me off and you get in my way, I have no problem taking you out. Yeah, I'm a raging bull. Like yeah. I'll just blow through you. Primitive is um, a good word. Yeah. And so he went and threatened him and dad never came around again. So that was the last he saw of his father. It It did work. And he talks about how it's his biggest regret not killing him. He, there's the whole thing in the documentary who talks of well, the whole thing. Richard's not exactly verbose, even though there's these three documentaries. As you can see, he doesn't like go on and on in big paragraphs. No. But but he does say, you know, that's one of my biggest regrets. I really should have killed him. Which, yeah. you know, I can, un- you, can um, you can almost understand. Mm-hmm. So by this time, the Coming Up Roses gang, there's five of them. They were all brutal and violent. Uh, living in the projects together. Well, now Richard's living with Linda, but you know, along the way, they li- that's where they met. They were um, thieving stores and homes, basically. That was, and he's 
pool hustling and so Richard became the person who planned all their jobs. You know, if you can imagine six guys sitting around a table, you know, smoking cigarettes and eating sandwiches or whatever, and they would plan these jobs. And Richard was the guy who was the mastermind, for lack of a better word. Um, he was making money, and then he began to gamble. He was gambling. So just like his father, he became a gambler, and he was gambling away all of his money. Um, he sort of didn't know the meaning of money, or he didn't care I don't think it had ever been a thing at that point in time. It becomes a thing later on, but he was frequenting dance halls and bars and he kind of became known in the community. You know, he's got a gang. He's really feeling himself. And I thought this was interesting. He, I read this in uh, Philip Carlo's book, which is a really good book. If, if you're interested in this sort of thing, or if you read a lot of books on the mafia, it's one more, one more book to put in there. Cause it's written really well. And Philip Carlo's a really good author. So he would wear these really big, bright suits. So if you can imagine six, five, pretty good looking still at this point, yeah. 16 years old, 17 16 17 18 and so wearing big yellow suits or big pink yeah, suits like the joker it's just <laughs> like it's yeah exactly i mean and then he would assault anyone who would comment about it he would just beat people up if yeah. they like made fun of him or whatever it's just such an interesting it, it, i don't Almost know like looking to provoke and yeah way too. like of course someone's gonna it's say provocative something it's yeah. like a super tough guy. <clears throat> you think about the time though, too. And I don't know. It's just interesting. So what ends up happening is this gang of theirs starts to get known in town. They're planning jobs. They're executing these things. Obviously they're making a name for themselves in the criminal community. And Richard's not subtle. He doesn't go unnoticed, right? It's like, I do understand what it's like to be tall and no matter what you do, you're going to get looked at. So you might as well do something outrageous. And I think that's a little bit of what he was doing. I'm sure there's lots of reasons, but who knows? Mm -hmm. um, so the Devocante family, and I'm probably not pronouncing that right i'll get better because <laughs> i'm going to say it a lot the next episode so this um, mafia family starts to notice and this guy named carmen uh, genovese whose nickname was meatball because <laughs> oh, apparently he looked like a meatball like short and round yeah. and, um apparently now this is a scene right out of sopranos for those of you who are who've watched the sopranos i don't know if you guys remember but this is the scene that happened in real life apparently at this moment in time where the mafia guy the made man invites you and your gang to his home and makes you spaghetti with meatballs oh, so that happened apparently um and they all sat around the table while this guy's throwing sausage in the in the sauce and talking just like any member of the Sopranos family and in and basically says <clears throat> I've heard a lot about you guys you seem great I'm always looking for people to uh, execute jobs for me and I'm going to give you a job and so if, it begins and so it begins and if you execute this job correctly maybe we do business together so let me sort of describe what happens next to give you a little taste of the beginning of Richard's mafioso career, I suppose, is they give him this job to kill this guy. So him and his band of merry men 
get in the car and go find the guy. And they make a decision. And this guy, John Wheeler, who is one of the gang of Richard's gang decides, they all decide that he's going to be the one to pull the trigger. Mm. So they go and they find the mark and they wait in the car. It's often about waiting murder apparently i'm learning is often about is about <laughs> like a professional She's now an assassin I, i've read so, about so many murders now it's like apparently it's you know make a plan go find the mark and then sit for a while wait for your moment mm-hmm. you know you have to be extremely patient so one of the gang members so john's gonna pull the trigger so they find the guy they're ready to go they're in the car okay go do it john let's go and John can't make it happen. He freezes. He won't move. So they wait some more for the guy. They keep they keep giving John an opportunity to execute on the job he said he would do. And it, what it sounds like is they waited and waited and waited, and it was raining, and then they waited some more, and the mark came out of the place, and now the guy's drunk. So mm-hmm. now the guy's drunk going to his car, and Richard was like, just give me the just just give me the gun like okay like you are no big deal like you obviously can't do this like let's go so richard says uh, let me take care of this takes the gun from john gets out of the car um walks up to the guy puts the gun on the left side of his head and shoots him right there in the street point blank in the head like nothing gets back in the car and everyone is silent richard you're as cold as ice and then Richard says later in these interviews that he didn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Doesn't like, surprise me. He just executed it. And that's again where he, they started to say he was cold as ice and the ice man. So the ice man has these, this double entendre. Yeah. It's one of the body disposal methods, but it's also that he was cold as ice. There was just no feeling. And then they were all paid $500 each for that. <laughs> and um, I mean, this was a long time ago, but still, that's still not a lot of money. This was like an interview. They go back. I guess Richard goes back. I'm not remembering the story extremely correctly, but something like Richard goes back to um, Carmen's house like the next morning type of thing. And the guy's like, I told you not to come back until the job is done. And Richard's like, it is done. And then, you know, Carmen's just like laughs and so impressed. And, oh, my God, I can't believe you did it. And then Richard probably gets all these good like daddy feelings. Sure. and Like praise, he's, you know, he's. Very young, even though it doesn't seem like it. And uh, and so begins his career. And that is where we will take a break and we'll be right back to discuss where we're at and provide some reflections. So we'll be right back. Hi there, we're back. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. I almost couldn't speak there for a second. <laughs> lost it i know um right so here we are we have brought us we have all come to the point where richard is now about to start his mafia hitman career basically is what we've brought him up to and hopefully everyone in these two episodes gets a sense of where he's coming from um the trajectory of how he got to this point and why this life, I mean, I just don't see any other options for him. 
I don't see. I mean, I saw some ways a few years ago, you know, when he was a little bit younger where he could have taken a different tack. Mm -hmm. There was actually an uncle, uh, his mom's Uncle Mickey uh, from Ireland, perfect, who he would spend summers with as a kid. He would just go there for a couple of weeks and probably only a couple, two, three times. And he talks about Uncle Mickey as the only person that ever like provided him with love and structure and normalcy. And he loved going there. Like he loved going and spending time there and it just wasn't enough. You know, often mm -hmm. that, that one protective relationship can be the difference between oh, becoming Kuklinski mm -hmm. and becoming kind of a, a slightly more average person that has issues. Right. And other uh, options. Yeah. And yeah. other options. And sometimes becomes a success story. Like that one, it just takes one. They say that a lot in psychology, like one person in your life to uh, believe in you, provide a normal environment. Like if at any point in his youth, um, CPS had been called, hello, although it didn't exist then, I don't think. Yeah. Um, if anyone had rescued him, for lack of a better wor word, out of his environment, you know, gone to live with Uncle Mickey at the age of eight or something, maybe after Florian's death, and had gone and lived in a different kind of environment, there would have been a chance. Yeah, I mean, there was never, um, there was, so a, a few things came up mm -hmm. related to what you're saying, but a few things came up over the last two parts of tonight, which mm -hmm. is, clearly, and I talked about this earlier, is the relational piece. So um, I kind of look at this all together. So we have the the relational piece, which never quite developed into anything healthy and it actually didn't develop at all. So I almost look at him like, like a feral child in mm -hmm. a way that was just sort of taught to survive like an animal on the street. I think animals are actually more sentient than he is. They mm -hmm. are more sentient than he is. Yeah. So, you know, and then you couple that with complex trauma Right. So when what we know about complex trauma is the, the the more trauma and we've talked about this before, the more trauma a child endure, or a person endures, uh, the, the younger they are and the little bit of time between each trauma lessens um, the resiliency for someone to be able to. Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just thrive, I guess. Mm -hmm. So in some ways he had so much resiliency that it overcorrected. It's almost like his, if you think of his brain like a computer, it just fried itself out from all this trauma. So, so you couple that with like the, the relational piece and then you look at the intergenerational relational system. So mm -hmm. there's a great book by Daniel Shaw called Traumatic Narcissism, mm -hmm. Relational Systems of Subjugation. And it really talks about um, how this stuff is passed down. And we definitely see that with him. Right. So he has these three, what I'm, noting right now these three pieces so the relational piece the complex trauma and then the intergenerational piece how does someone i mean everything is going against his ability to empathize relate i mean he, it was like he was born to do this yeah i mean his humanity was um stolen stripped yeah and and i want to mention while you were talking i was thinking you know it's really important to note that empathy is built Yes, it's not innate. It's not something we're born with. Mm -mm. It's built in all of the attachment behaviors that happen. If you ever study um, zero to five attachment theory, which I, I've been blessed in the last six months to take an extensive training 
with a wonderful trainer named Dr. Barbara Stroud, who specializes in zero to five attachment issues and working with babies and families. And uh, yeah, there is a lot that did not happen. I mean, Richard was being mm -hmm. beaten yeah. to the point of being knocked out in those years. Like empathy right. was nothing. Yeah, it's, Feeling. It's, it's not an innate quality Humanity. that we have. And we yeah. see it play out in the world where people go, how can someone be, we're not innately empathic. It actually takes energy and mm -hmm. thoughtfulness and modeling to be empathic. And he didn't have any of that. No. So. And nor did his mom by that time. No. And so she the, couldn't have taught him that. No. Yeah. And that's where all the intergenerational um, trauma comes in, which there was no one there who was able mm -hmm. to model. There were no protective factors for right. his child. So he was what we would consider in like just layman's terms a monster yeah evil right the way that people oftentimes will talk about how we dis, um, describe the trauma but it is he is like a monster mm -hmm. it's true i think um it's it's brutal because most of the population if you're familiar with him at all you're familiar with his capture story which is interesting, and we will get into that uh, in the next two episodes. Um, the capture story is very interesting because it was by an undercover cop um, who infiltrated his his life, and so that became a, a you know movies and books and things about that because of our fascination with the mafia. And then he's also known for being this contract killer that actually had a family and three children that knew nothing about mm -hmm. what he did for a living basically yeah so we've managed to discuss for you know two hours all the stuff that happened before that mm -hmm. and i think it gives a context for what we're about to discuss mm -hmm. um which is the the true um i guess it's just the the birthing Mm -hmm. You know, of of now, what we're going to talk about going forward is how it just it just reincarnated itself over and over and over again. His and how and how we as humans will will use our trauma and our defenses and our um, the things we've learned to do to survive in the world and whatever those things are. We we use those to make a living or. Mm -hmm. um, have a relationship or whatever else to he managed to survive in this it's pretty remarkable world and like had a career for 30 years and raised a family out of this and so many of the people we have studied certainly when i did manson you know manson was never a productive person in society no. He was never what we would call a productive no, that's member why I say, of society. This is pretty remarkable because he actually was pretty successful mm. um, and and was able to take what happened to him. I mean, clearly it's maladaptive. Please do not misread oh, me on this. Please, but, of course. But he became very successful. Yes. And he used what happened to him to, to his benefit. He found a world. Yeah. He found a world. He found a world and by, you know, was taken into that world because of his unique abilities yeah yeah and so um yeah don't misinterpret we know it's we're, we're not craving to be a psychopath God, but no there are some it's reasoning there's some conveniences that come with not having any empathy or feelings yeah there it's just reasoning and 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 i think the way we look at things which has played out over many episodes um 
of our discussions is that the way we look at things is fairly pragmatically in the sense that we're looking at a psychology. We're looking yeah. at a person and and why and how and the ways in which these kinds of things um, are generated in mm -hmm. a person. So hopefully you understand that. If you do not, you know where to reach us. <laughs> If you have, should have any questions. So yes, we please tune back in for the shrink chat show on Friday. Uh, <laughs> it's always a little bit of insanity in my opinion. Yeah. We, we go on rants. There was a couple of rants this week. Yeah. There's some media discussions. So it's a sugar. Yeah. <laughs> Kathy had a lot of sugar. I had some coffee. So if you enjoy a little bit of the lighter side of our personalities, but also, um, the more, uh, Let's say we get a little excited about things. That's where we go on rants and make jokes. So please join us for the Shrink Chat Show as well. It's our companion show to Terror Talk. And uh, we still have two more weeks where we will be discussing Richard Kuklinski. And we thank you very much for your listenership. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.